Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Angus Blackman. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net, and we're based at Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. If you want to play a bigger role in policymaking, studying at Crawford School will provide you with all the skills and expertise you need to make a difference. You'll learn from some of the world's leading public policy experts in fields like economics, climate, health and beyond. We've got a wide range of short courses and postgraduate degrees available to you. Go check them out at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Now, the internet, especially social media platforms, have given us the opportunity to share information like never before. But unfortunately, not all information was created equal. Rumours, half-truths and even straight-out lies can spread at lightning speed, shared unknowingly and sometimes knowingly by users all around the world. Left unchecked, these falsehoods are having serious and lasting impacts on issues as diverse and critical as climate change, politics and the current coronavirus crisis. And while far from the only nation to face this challenge, the United States has in many ways become Exhibit A when it comes to the spread of falsehoods online. This presidential election campaign has become an information battleground and has highlighted the impacts this can have on a polity. So today we want to ask... What impact is misinformation and fake news having on our political systems, and what can policymakers do to tackle it? And we've got two excellent guests with us today to discuss these issues. First, Dr. Erin Newman is a cognitive psychologist. She's a lecturer and an undergraduate advisor at the Australian National University's Research School of Psychology, and she's one of the authors of the Debunking Handbook 2020, a free new handbook describing the best ways to combat misinformation. It's also a big welcome back to Dr. Jennifer Hunt. She's a lecturer at the ANU National Security College, where she specialises in the national security of critical systems, including energy and cyber, and recently wrote a global health security network report looking at COVID-19 disinformation and conspiracy theories, as well as their longer term implications. Erin and Jen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. To start with, I wanted to ask both of you, just how big a problem is misinformation for our public discourse? Erin, maybe if we start with you. I think it's probably good to answer that question with something very concrete, which is I think that we've seen the impact of misinformation in 2020 in a very, very concrete, scary way. 
we know that misinformation in particular in regard to public health messaging can have effects that directly affect um, or influence what happens to an individual. But the flow-on effect is huge in terms of how that can impact on communities. Um, So, yeah, I think 2020 has been a year where we've all sort of, it's, it's come much closer to home in terms of the impact of misinformation. We can talk numbers in terms of, you know, how quickly misinformation spreads on social media. But I think thinking about it in that very concrete way is, is a good way to think about the impact that we're, we're all experiencing right now. Yeah, absolutely. Jen? So I'm a scholar of disinformation, which is a a little different than misinformation. So misinformation is information that is false, but not intentionally so, while disinformation is information that is still false, but intentionally so. And those have very different uh, sort of intentions, but the same ramifications. It's kind of like the difference between manslaughter and murder. At the end of the day, there's still a dead body there. Um, So I say the COVID-19 pandemic vividly demonstrates the dangers of both misinformation and disinformation um, and really sits within this post-truth age that we've been living in, sort of recognizing this public sentiment that facts are no longer persuasive or they're up for um, debate based on uh, perceptions rather than evidence. And I think probably the most dangerous intersection of that has been conspiracy theories, which are neither misinformation nor disinformation. They're sort of this gray area. Um, where nefarious intentions are assigned to these secret groups that are controlling our lives in these ways um, that are a threat to our health and well-being. Erin, I wanted you to take us a little bit out of the policy space just to start and into our own minds for a moment. It, It can be easy, I think, to sit back when we're talking about misinformation and fake news and disinformation as well and to think, well, this would never happen to me. I'm not that gullible. But as you've pointed out beautifully in the past, most of us have been stuck, sucked into believing something that isn't real. And spoiler alert here for any kids that might be listening along, but <laughs> that's Santa. Why yeah. is Santa such a powerful piece of misinformation? Well, I mean, taking taking a step back and like you're saying, thinking about how, you know, as humans, we come to believe things are true or how we establish whether things are facts or whether we think they're false. Um when you think about how we do this in, in a cognitive, from a cognitive perspective, um, pe- we talk in psychology. We talk about people taking either an analytical approach or a more intuitive approach in assessing whether something is real. Um, and so, when we think about an analytical approach, that's looking at, for example, the logic behind a particular claim or the coherence in terms of how the evidence hangs together for a particular idea that you've encountered. But because as we go through our lives, we're often multitasking and we only have a certain amount of cognitive effort to use at any one moment, people are often making judgment based on sort of what we call like a gut feeling, um, which is an intuitive reaction to information we see. Um, And when you look at the data on or the empirical evidence on, on the different ways in which we can be sort of nudged into believing something is true. Um, there's a huge body of work here, but one of the strongest variables there is actually something very simple, which is the repetition of information. So the more that something is repeated over and over again, the more we are likely to believe it. And I think one of the most surprising findings in this area of research, and it really gets at what you're saying, right? So misinformation, disinformation that, you know, that happens to other people, not me, um, some of the key findings in this body of work are that actually there aren't many reliable individual difference variables that um, allow us to understand 
who is protected and who is not from the role of repetition. So we know that people who are high on something called need for cognition that sort of signals and helps us capture people's tendency to think deeply in a very elaborative way about something, um, those people at times can be even more vulnerable to biases caused by familiarity. So when it comes to the human brain and how we sort you know, fiction from facts, um, it can be a bit messy, especially when we're relying on intuitive reactions to information we see in our environment. Yeah, absolutely. And in your research, you borrow a Stephen Colbert term, and big brownie points from me, by the way, and that's truthiness. And is that kind of what you're talking about? Can you tell us a little bit about what that means and why it's significant in relation to misinformation, disinformation? Yeah, sure thing. So we totally stole that word. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> word. And unfortunately, it does capture um, what's happening with the way we evaluate information um, from a moment-to-moment perspective. So what we know about how we process information in our environments is that people are sort of in a very ongoing way monitoring how easy or difficult it is to um, make sense of information that they encounter. So at a content level of analysis, we'll consider whether something um, sort of holds together well. We'll look at the content of information. We might consider the source of information, especially if it's called to our attention. But most of the time, we're making a judgment based on something called cognitive fluency. Um, And that is basically the ease of processing information. And there are a number of different inputs into what we call cognitive fluency. So, for example, if my audio is coming through nicely, nice, nice and crisp and clear here, um, I would there would be cognitive fluency in my messaging. Um, and when information is easy to process, people tend to nod along. And the curious thing is that people often don't aren't really good at tracking the source of cognitive fluency. So, the fact that my microphone is nice and clear or if there was a bit of an echo on it, that would affect people's experience. But they would likely not be very good at tracking how that's influencing their judgments of me as a speaker. So cognitive fluency is a huge input into how people evaluate information. And that's why we talk about truthiness, because it's really how information feels um, that's guiding our judgments, not really the content. And, you know, of course, there are situations where people can be informed by the content and they can draw on their own general knowledge. What we're talking about is more um, insidious context where people are dealing with information where there's a lot of uncertainty or you're in an area where you don't have a lot of general knowledge, then you see a particular um, influence of these sort of truthiness-based assessments. Jen, as Erin mentions, this flow of information can come in sort of far more malign terms than forms rather than Santa, particularly online. Why is it so difficult to distinguish between fact and fiction, particularly on, I guess, social media? Well, I think part of the reason is that the cognitive load is so high for everyday pieces of information that one of the shortcuts we've relied on is experts. And we're losing trust in experts and institutions and the fallback on credentials. And I'd say that there's there's even a movement um, celebrating ignorance in some corners, going to Wikipedia University or thinking you have as much knowledge as a physician simply by Googling WebMD. And I think it was Professor Tom Nichols who warned in his book, The Death of Expertise, that dismissing in learning is now a habit of mind that's sort of crippling the ability of people to exercise basic civil and social responsibilities in their communities. And taking information wholesale from social media, from the dark web, you know, the dark corners of the interwebs um, without reflection 
And I think it's one thing for citizens to do that. It's quite another for our leaders, too. So I'd say far more dangerous is when leaders pick up these conspiracy theories, this disinformation um, from from wherever it springs uh, on the interwebs, and then it's laundered through traditional media, right wing or shock jock radio, uh, Fox News, uh, and then then it's then it's uh, sort of airborne. That's a vector, and we saw that people who watched, for instance, certain shows on Fox took COVID-19 far less seriously than peers who watched different shows. And thus they took different actions or not to protect themselves and others from the pandemic. We touched on the difference between mis- and disinformation before, but how much of the false information that we see online is just an individual relatively innocently sharing kind of incorrect information? And how much of it is being led in sort of a coordinated way by actors who might be seeking to undermine national security? Sure. So I think there's there's a lot of actors out there. Um, some misinformation is spread for entertainment, some for profit, and some to destabilize their political enemies. And it's very hard to detangle because there's lots of overlapping motives there. A lot of the narratives that we saw, for instance, that are detailed in the Senate Intelligence Committee on Russian interference in the 2016 uh, election uh, weren't created by hostile foreign actors. They were just amplified uh, and there were coordinated efforts to do so through tracking hashtags, through uh, bots and trolls. And this is not just around elections and policies. There have been documented incidents, I think as far back as 2014, where public health researchers were tracking how uh, Russian bots and trolls were interfering in vaccination discourse online, sort of mudding the waters around scientific consensus and, um, you know, just contributing to division. So I should say the goal of disinformation and misinformation is very different. So disinformation, the goal is to undermine credible sources of information and to erode trust between citizens and their democratic institutions. So that that division is fomented for a particular reason, but the narratives uh, are the same across many of them. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about the US context uh, a little bit later on in the second part. But for now, Erin, what sort of tactics are being used to counter the spread of misinformation and are they working? Yes, that's a really interesting question. Um, There's a pretty decent scientific literature looking at that question because it's really tricky. So what we know from the research on misinformation and psychology is that misinformation is very sticky. So there's something in psychology that we call the continued influence effect and it's specifically supposed to try and Um, you know, tackle how can we correct misinformation. Um, But what it does is actually captures how sticky it is. So let me tell you about it. So it it, it sort of connects with things that Jen has already noted. So exposure to misinformation um, is not innocuous. So we know from the continued influence effect literature that simply being exposed to misinformation even when you're subsequently corrected on that misinformation, can have effects that bleed onto people's behavior in other contexts. So, for example, um, say you get you get sick and you initially think, oh, it's it's food poisoning from this particular restaurant. And I come by and say, hey, by the way, it's not actually that. Here's a different attribution for your experience. I would still, the continued influence effect shows that people still behave in a way that is consistent with the initial misinformation. So I'd avoid the restaurant. So I think the big question that cognitive and social psychologists have been trying to figure out is how do we deal with misinformation 
given how sticky it is. And I don't think we have a complete solution yet. So I can tell you that when you look at um, debunkings, they're most effective when people are given an alternative explanation for the misinformation that they have encountered. But, but they're complicated because when you think about um, how we share that information or try and correct something in the general sort of popular media, there are all sorts of hurdles that we have to pass. So first of all, when someone starts to read a news article, you're assuming that they're going to read right to the end and that they're going to encounter in a very effective debunking with a nice, nicely worded, very sticky alternative explanation. But we also know it's the case that people often don't get right to the end <laughs> on these online articles. So in working, it's I think it's a big effort in terms of working with journalists to figure out how do you actually structure um, an article so that number one, you can make the truth really sticky. And number two, you can address the misinformation, but include an alternative and do that really early on in the article before people have left and moved on to the next thing. Is it a little bit the case that once an idea takes hold, it's a bit like kind of the horses bolted, so to speak, you know, the people people get attracted to this idea and hold on to it. That's what you mean by the stickiness. Yeah, there is that. So that's, you know, once it started spreading, it's kind of everywhere. And that's a case where um, we would say as scientists, it's worthwhile debunking. So it's worthwhile engaging and and producing effective uh, corrections to that misinformation. But there are other contexts um, and Jen, I'm not sure what what your data are on this. When you when you look at the um, conspiracy theories, some of them start and and they they don't spread very far initially. And once uh, someone engages with a conspiracy theory and attempts to debunk it, for example, that might not be the best approach when it hasn't spread too far to begin with. So one of our cautions would be not to engage if something hasn't already gone viral. Because simply engaging through an effort of debunking can be a platform for something like that to to spread more um, rapidly and broadly. Yeah, absolutely. Jen, did you have any thoughts on that? I was actually interviewed by Pharmacy Times about this. (laughs) Someone had gotten a hold of this report um, and had asked, okay, well, pharmacists are the front line um, for healthcare in a lot of these communities. And we're already seeing conspiracy theories and disinformation and misinformation around vaccines. So what can we do? What should we say? Should we we repeat that narrative? And I, I said, you know, always start with the truth. Um, so I think part of the mistake that we make is we repeat the conspiracy theory to debunk it. And thus, through that repetition that Aaron was talking about, it becomes further embedded. Start with the, start with the truth and reframe it. Um, so, for instance, if someone were to come in and say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm worried about the safety of this vaccine because I've heard that Bill Gates is trying to track us all with 5G technology, <laughs> you, know? um, you can't repeat that and just put a knot in it. Because people just remember the verbs and they remember the nouns and those are more powerful than the qualifiers. So you would say you'd have to repeat what is true and what you want people to remember. So vaccinations are safe. We have processes in place um, and um, a, an appeal to other emotions because this is not just about uh you know, the mental appeals. This is about emotional appeals. Um, We do that all the time in public information campaigns for public policy around public health, for instance, and about uh, the safety of the community and about the people that vaccination protects who can't get vaccination, for instance. So I think we have to do a better job 
of engaging with conspiracy theories. I think you're right. We shouldn't necessarily spread them if they haven't taken off yet. And when we do decide to confront them, we shouldn't just repeat them and then follow up with the truth. We have to be very careful in our framing and repeating things in a way that we want people to remember. That's really interesting. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about misinformation and disinformation in the context of US politics. But we'll just take a break here and be back with you in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. We're back now in Policy Forum Pod and I'm here with Erin Newman and Jen Hunt talking about misinformation, disinformation and fake news. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about the psychology of misinformation and why it's creating such a headache for policymakers. But with the US election just around the corner, now I want to chat about information in the context of US politics. Jen, I think it's fair to characterize the current political climate in the US as extremely divided, even toxic. Do you think misinformation and disinformation is a cause or a symptom of this? Well, as an American, you can probably tell from the accent, I'm not from around here. Uh, I can personally testify um, that there is a lot of rancor and division. And I think what's different about this election is that the division is within communities. It's within families. And some of the arguments are based on misinformation and disinformation, and some of it, I remember this very clearly in conversations with my with my father who listens to Rush Limbaugh, is inherent in some of these narrative is the tiniest morsel and grain of truth. So you have to deal with that, right? So I remember once we were talking, he said, there are, you know, I think um, the Democratic administration has undercounted unemployment. Really, there are 100 million unemployed people in the United States. And I thought, wow, that's huge. That would be a 40% unemployment rate. And yes, that would be something we need to talk about. But a quick Google on the U.S. Census reveals that that 100 million statistic is correct, but it's 100 million people not in the labor force. That's children, retired people, right? (laughs) So not exactly the uh, nefarious intent that was subscribed to ascribe to that number, but you have to engage with that number. And I think this election has just seen a complete ramp up of disinformation and misinformation coming from the White House, coming from public officials on everything from COVID to climate change to the integrity of the electoral system itself. Looking through the 10 open hearings that the Senate Intelligence Committee had that was chaired by a Republican over the last four years, One of the main narratives in Russian interference was about voter fraud, 
All right, so this is complete myth. Lots of research has been done to show that it's 0.00003% of billions of, of ballots cast. But that's the narrative that has been amplified um, by the Trump administration, and it's now trickling down into state officials as well. And this is incredibly dangerous um, because, again, it's one of those active measures uh, uh, goals, which is to erode trust uh, between citizens and their democratic institutions. And there's nothing more sacred than a democratic polity than an election and in the peaceful transfer of power for the loser. So I think this voter fraud myth, um, and again, I'm repeating it, which is exactly what I told you not to do, <laughs> um, is very dangerous. So what we should be talking about is how secure our electoral systems are, how many backups we have, how um, even though we don't have the vaunted Australian Electoral Commission in the United States, you know, there's no sausage sizzle, um, <laughs> that we do have other processes in place. And we have officials that care about a fair election. And those are the stories right. that we should be highlighting instead of repeating the, the disinformation. Erin, do does such a politically charged environment make it harder for our brains to make the sort of rational informed decisions about the information we see online that we need to? Yeah, so yes. Let me answer that with a, a few quick things. So the first is that because it's particularly polarised, you see something called identity-based um, motivation. So people tend to, they're, they're motivated to process information in line with their own beliefs. That's just sort of a fundamental aspect of our cognitive systems. The next thing I'd say is that um, we're all aware of echo chambers now. We know that the information we get is consistent with our general beliefs and the kinds of friends we have and, and that kind of thing. So people are often not exposed to counter-attitudinal information or even this, the kinds of corrections or debunkings that Jen and I have been talk, talking about. So um, one of the things that you, you find when you look at fact-checkers um, is that fact-checkers, when they're trying to establish whether something's reliable or not, they they search across sources. They do what we call a lateralized search. Um, and what we tend to do is an internal search of information that we encounter. So I'll look at a given article, right, and try and establish whether it sort of makes sense and holds together. Is it coherent and does it feel right? But a more effective strategy um, that we can teach, you know, ourselves, but also um, in high schools, for example, going forward, is that a more effective search is to look across a number of different sources and sources that aren't consistent with our own political beliefs. Um, and when you have a look at the the psychological research on the effects of source and in terms of correcting misinformation, the two important variables are trust and credibility. Um, so you might get a credible source that's an expert, but at the end of the day, who we trust is, is really defined by our social circle. So trust inevitably becomes the more powerful source of um, information um, in, in regard to correction. So doing a lateralized search is probably the most effective way that you can deal with this issue of um, echo chambers, but it requires effort. It requires intention, a deli deliberate attempts to get correct information. And I guess one of the problems that Jen and I have, have flagged is that people don't necessarily have the time to do that every time they see something. And the effective information that we encounter on social media is insidious. We might see repetitions of a claim over and over and over and, and not go and search to establish whether it's right or wrong. Absolutely. And those lateral searches aren't just a function of time, but of technology. So when I'm teaching propaganda and information warfare, the first thing I have my students do is they all take out their laptops, or their phones, and we Google the same term, and we see what different results we get. 
And so those echo chambers are sometimes built for us by algorithms, which are prime for engagement. And as we know, BS is highly engaging, but it's also based on our, P- our IP address, our previous searches, what type of computer we're using, what browser we're using. And so I think we have to instruct people in lateral searches, but we also have to gain some control over technology that narrows our search results from the start. Yeah. I mean, there's clearly, you've talked a little bit about this already, Jen, but there's clearly a significant number of people who take the, in the US, who take the president's word of word as gospel, even if his statements are disproven, right? Aaron, how significant is it that these statements are coming from a position of power, from a, for, for many, a trusted source? Does this make it so much harder for people to tell fact from fiction? <laughs> I'm not sure if I should. There are a few different ways to think about answering your question. Sure. Um, on that front, does it matter? Some of the data says it doesn't matter. When you think about, you know, there's some research looking at um, whether it's ethical or unethical to spread um information that you know to be factually incorrect um and that has to do with a little bit in terms of morality and and when you look at statements that have come from people in high positions and and powerful positions and when people know that the information is factually incorrect um they're more likely to share it and less likely to think it's um unethical if it's been repeated several times so with that in mind, I would say that sometimes the source just doesn't matter at all, but it's these more basic cognitive functions that are contributing to people's behavior. Um, I think political scientists might disagree with you, Erin. <laughs> <laughs> Jen? Um, we have in political science a body of research about um, decision-making and, and partisanship, but, but the importance of elite cues, that in the absence of infinite time to investigate every uh, option, that we tend to take our cues from leaders. Um, and in some ways, uh, the, the reason that we vote for certain people is that we trust their judgment. Um, and we sort of outsource some of that every day, uh, um, thinking on every single issue very deeply. And so I think the power of elite cues have been demonstrated through the pandemic. If people got their source from President Trump, they underestimated the severity of the virus. They uh, believed conspiracy theories about the origin. Um, They didn't trust the efficacy of mitigation efforts like masks uh, and lockdowns. And they're also the least likely uh, to be signing up for vaccination because they don't think it's necessary, right? If you believe that the severity is overblown, then you're not going to take extraordinary measures. And so I think when it comes to positions as powerful as the president of the United States, the power of elite cues can't be underestimated. We've done uh, experimental political science uh, research where respondents are given certain passages to read and then asked to make a decision. And when those passages are someone from their own political tribe or they're from a leader that they trust, they make totally different decisions than if you switch those names around. So I think... When we're talking about how people make decisions, elite cues are incredibly important. I guess moving away from the domestic scene for the moment, we've seen serious concerns raised at the last election about the role of foreign interference. How big of an issue do you see this being this time around? Um, So I would have named 20th... In 2016, I would have named disinformation from hostile foreign actors one of the key threats to the election. I think that Russian actors, 19 of whom have been indicted... All of them and more could have downed tools the day after the election, and we would still be feeling their impact now. Because now the disinformation is carried by domestic political actors with the same narratives, the same myths, the same conspiracy theories. And so I don't want to overestimate 
the influence of hostile foreign actors in this election when so many other more important people uh, are carrying their water for them. And the problem with that is that we have very different policy remedies depending on where the disinformation is coming from. It's kind of like campaign finance rules. Um, we have very strict rules about outsiders interfering in the election, but far less rules about uh, domestic actors engaging in that same exercise. And the same is true for for the narratives. You know, um, I think it's a very different policy proposition to say Russia or Iran are seeding the population with these false narratives and disrupting democratic debate by impersonating Americans and 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 seeding these dangerous conspiracy theories. It's quite another for our own leaders to do that. Very true. Um, unfortunately, we're nearing the end of our discussion here today. But before we say goodbye, I wanted to draw us back to policy specifically and ask you for some advice, I guess, for policymakers. What would be the one policy change or initiative you'd like to see that would help governments and society more broadly address the threat of misinformation or disinformation? Erin, maybe if we start with you. Um, from a psychological perspective, it's giving people the the tool set to understand how they can better manage and assess information they encounter. There's some promising work um, looking at the, the effects of what we call inoculation um, on protecting people from being vulnerable to misinformation. And that's at its very basic level really just highlighting for people the, the kinds of um, approaches that are used by people with intent to disinform or um, in the case of misinformation, I think it really applies more to disinformation um, and, and what sort of approaches are used by those people so that it's easy to identify or easier to identify in practice. So there's some work getting people to sort of gamify disinformation so that you can partake as a as someone whose goal is to mislead others and how would you set up the website what what would you do if you had access to bots and that kind of thing and after people have exposure to a, a game like that where they're given the same tools that have been used in practice and in real life those people are then less susceptible to misinformation or those kinds of practices later um, and it's good news it, it there's evidence that that generalizes. So if I teach you about the tools in a one particular context, for example, regarding climate change, um, those same practices are identified when I give you information in a different domain. I certainly, I think that I really find the idea of gamifying that really interesting. And based on my um, very wet, cold Canberra weekend, I think making it more like FIFA 21 will probably help me better understand mis and disinformation. <laughs> Jen, how about you? Sure. So I have a couple of options. Um, you know, when I seize control, this will be an act. <laughs> um, the education element is incredibly important. I think we have to realize that what we learned in 2016 is that the people who most spread fake news were the over 65 crowd on Facebook and ultra conservatives. So education isn't going to reach those people. They're no longer in the schoolyard. But I have seen quite creative assignments in that children have to do an assignment to ascertain the credibility of information and it's essentially a fake news exercise, but the task is to complete it with a parent or grandparent. So really the target that of that education is not the child. <laughs> um, it's the groups that have been identified as vulnerable to misinformation and disinformation through previous studies. On the policy front, I think we also have to look very carefully at technology and traditional media. Um, you know, it used to be that we had a fairness doctrine in the United States, which meant that news broadcasts had to feature this thing we called facts. And if they didn't, then they were fined or they could lose their license. 
And I think what we've seen is that when it comes to public health, the difference between fact and fiction is the difference between life and death. Some of the most dangerous reporting I've ever seen involving misinformation and disinformation has been about the pandemic. And I think part of it was an attempt to just fill a vacuum of information um, and to provide certainty and community in a time when people are really looking for answers. But I think we all have to be very clear about what the scientific process actually involves when it comes to these things. We are investigating a new phenomenon. We are updating our information as it comes out. So there is no benefit to leaping to conclusions or discounting future activity and actions um, from the start. But I think that we have to look at how traditional media, not just social media, amplifies misinformation and disinformation. There have been a couple of community-led organizations that target their advertisers, and we've seen a huge loss of advertisers for corporations or organizations that profit from misinformation, like Breitbart, which is online exclusively, but also Fox News, losing heaps of advertisers, um, more than 50% on certain shows, and brands not wanting to be associated with misinformation and disinformation. So I think consumers can take some action, professional organizations can uh, create codes of conduct or ethics. Potentially, if we're talking about physicians going on social media and saying things that aren't true, uh, and psychologists also have a code of ethics that they, um, if there are complaints about them, then they have to, uh, you know, deal with those or their professional qualifications are at stake. So I think it's going to be a constellation of activities around regulation, around codes of conduct for professional organizations in positions of public trust potentially including political parties, and education as as for everyone, uh, as consumers of information. Plenty to think about there. That's all we've got time for today, unfortunately. So thanks so much to Erin and Jen for joining us here today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Listeners, we'd love to know what you think about today's discussion, so please reach out to us. You, you can find us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or send us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. Or if you want to get in touch with the pod team directly, other listeners as well, and even some of our guests, join the pod squad on Facebook. Just type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and you'll find us there. We can't wait to meet you there. And if you haven't done so already, the best way to keep up to date with all of our Policy Forum Pod episodes is to subscribe. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows from. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod on Friday. But until then, stay safe and bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.